Hey, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for being a podcast listener to Cross Defense. Today we're going to take up three listener questions. We talk about the armor of God. We talk about uh, did the prophets understand what they were prophesying? And then we talk about, we spend a, a lot of time, in fact, at the beginning of the show, talking about something I forgot about. Oh, yeah, five rules for reading the book of Revelation and unfold. How do we rightly and with comfort read this book? So hope you enjoy the show. Feedback always is welcome. Wolfmuller.co, hit the contact button. Enjoy. Man, oh man, is this fantastic. God in heaven not only creates us, but he also finds us fallen and redeems us, and then he tells us about it in his word. And he gives us the opportunity to rejoice in that word, and that's what we do on cross. I mean, that's what we do every day, all the time. That's what that's what KFUO Radio is about. But that's especially what we want to give our attention to here. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Author of, oh, there's a new, how about this? Exciting news. A new book is about to be published by CPH called A Martyr's Faith for a Messed Up World. Uh, they asked if I'd write a book. And uh, yes, I wrote it as if I wanted, I wanted my daughter Hannah to have this in her hands as she goes to college. So I think she'll get it about a week late, but... It's the idea is how, how the devil attacks our faith. In fact, it's a, it tells some stories of the martyrs, but it's chiefly a, about these three great attacks on our faith. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. He says the sower is sowing the seed, and some, some falls in the rocks, and some falls on the path, and some falls in the weeds. And so we talk about that, the, how the devil, that's the birds, the seed on the path, and the world, that's persecution and the seed in the rocks and the flesh. That's pleasures of this life. That's the seed in the weeds, how these all are trying to snuff out our faith and how Jesus fights back against it. That's what the book is about. So it's called A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World. You can pre-order now on Amazon, maybe on CPH2. I saw they're putting out some promotional stuff uh, just starting, so you can do that. I have this idea. I don't know if this is right or not, but if enough people pre-order, then like it ships to Amazon and pff, they send them all out and it goes up on the charts or something like that. So if you want to be a part of, it'd be cool to be, I think, I think uh, one time I was a bestseller. It was like bestseller in new releases in Lutheran conservative Christianity or something like that. So there was like two books that I was competing against. So, you know, it's, a, it's nice to be at the top of a list, but it's kind of a short list. But I don't know how, how well this will do. I hope I hope this book is encouraging. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an encouragement. So if that's of interest to you, uh, you can find it there. Today on Cross Defense, we are going to take up your questions. You've been sending me. I've got a pile of four or five pages of questions here. You've been sending them in. If you'd like to submit your own question, the easiest way, I think, to do that is is wolfmuller.co. If you go to wolfmuller.co, that's where all the theology stuff ends up. There's a little button that says contact somewhere on there. And then if you if you fill that in, it somehow gets into my email. And then I try to ignore it for a couple of years, but eventually then we do the Q&A. So if you want to send a question, you can do that there. Or um, some of these shows end up as YouTube videos, and you can leave your comments there for YouTube videos as well. So let's get going, shall we? I want to take up this first question, which says, Pastor Wolfmuller, where is it? Pastor Wolfmuller, you mentioned one time in passing five rules for understanding the book of Revelation, but I can't find what the five rules are. Could you tell me? Of course. That's great. This, in fact, comes from the old book. 
that old book, which was Has American Christianity Failed? It seems old to me, although it was only 2016. And in there, we were talking about how to rightly read the book of Revelation. And I think this is so important because, I don't know, what do you, what do you think most people think of when they hear the book of Revelation? I mean, I think they think of, like, all these horrible sort of pictures of the of the beast rising up out of the ocean or the 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 prostitute coming to devour the church or the dragons or the stars falling from heaven or all this death and destruction i mean most for, for most people the book of revelation is kind of a horrible image it's like a nightmarish sort of thing but if that's all we get out of the book of revelation i think we're missing most of it in fact in fact this book of revelation is one of the greatest books of comfort I was looking, we're getting ready for a funeral this weekend here at St. Paul Lutheran Church, and and uh, and I was looking at some of the old uh, funeral bulletins, and on the front of all of them is printed the text, Revelation chapter 7. Behold, I see the, this, the vision of the saints before the throne clothed in white robes with the tears wiped from their eyes. It's a beautiful picture, and that's really, so if we're not getting the comfort, we're not reading it right. So, so here's five rules for reading, for reading the book of Revelation. Rule number one. Remember who is being revealed. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is what we get the word apocalypse from. But apocalypse means apo from, and calypsis is like a veil. So like when Moses put a veil over his head or when a bride puts a veil over her face when she's coming down for the wedding. We had a beautiful wedding this last weekend, and the, here comes the bride in her veil, and then the father lifts the veil. And I've always wanted to, to say at the moment when the father lifts the veil off the bride, I wanted to say, what a beautiful apocalypse. <laughs> but I don't think that anybody would appreciate it, especially the bride. <laughs> but this is what, uh, that's what uh, apocalypse or revelation means. It means the unveiling of something. It means the curtain is lifted, and you see what's underneath. And, and what is it then, this is the chief question, what is it that's being revealed to us in the apocalypse, in the, in the revelation given to St. John? And the answer is right there in chapter 1. The apocalypse of Jesus Christu. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing that's being revealed to us is the person, Jesus. Now, this is so important because so many people want to read the book of Revelation as a revelation of the roadmap of the events of the end times. They want to read the book of Revelation as a, as a list of all the things that are happening right before the end when Jesus comes back. It's like it's supposed to be some sort of secret code for the, uh, like, a, like a prophecy of Nostradamus or something like that. I remember, now I, I used to read Revelation this way. I remember when I was 19 and I went to backpack around Israel, and one of the reasons I went to Israel was to see biblical prophecy unfold before my eyes. I mean, that's just what I thought, that all these things were a timeline of the end. But, if we're, but we want to see that the thing that's being revealed is Jesus, the person of Jesus. That's key. And that's rule number one. Now, rule number two is also from Revelation 1, 1, and that is to remember who the revelation is for. And the answer is that it's for the church of all ages. We have this tendency, again, to interpret the book of Revelation as like a, it's like a pre-written history of the last 10 years of the world. And so, so who is it helpful for? Well, it's helpful for the people living in those last 10 years. That's it. This is not the case, nor is it the case that the book of Revelation was just written for the people who were under the persecution of Nero or Diocletian or whoever it was that was given so much grief to the Christian back in the old days. No, it's, it's for the church of all time. 
It says in Revelation 1, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants that the things that must soon take place. In other words, it's not just written for the people at the end. It's written for the people at the beginning, and it's written for the people all in between. In other words, this book is for you. And we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, hopefully today. And we live in that great expectation that he'll be back soon. But we, but we don't want to cut ourselves off from the gift of this book, nor do we want to cut off the generations that have, went bef that have gone before us from the comfort of this book. We realize that the book of Revelation, the revelation that's being given is for the whole church all the way along. That's rule number two. Rule number three is this. We want to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is a key uh, for us, as when, when we read any book of the Bible, I mean, we want to remember that um, that we t that we take the Scripture in context. That we don't isolate these texts and make them proof texts and sort of lift them out of what's the the surrounding context that are going on there. So we want to let the Scripture interpret Scripture, and especially when there's confusing parts, we want to let the clear Scripture interpret the unclear Scripture. So we want to let the we, we want to let the clear assertions of the Bible, um, we, we want to let them give clarity to the texts that aren't not quite as clear. Now, when we study the book of Revelation, and when you start to dig into it, you recognize that, that almost every element of what's being presented to us comes already from the prophets in the Old Testament, or from the, the teaching of Jesus about the end times. So when we read, for example, about the plumb line or the measuring of the temple, or we read about the river coming, coming out of the new temple, or we read about the binding of the devil, or we read about the thousand years, we want to recognize that these things are already established for us in the scriptures. For example, the thousand years, this is a big one. In Revelation 20, we see this vision of the, of the angel uh, grabbing a hold of the devil and wrapping him with a chain and throwing him into a bottomless pit for a thousand years so that he would no longer deceive the nations. And we, we come across that and we say, well, what's going on here? But we want to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. Has the Bible ever talked about a thousand years? Well, in fact, it has. In Psalm 90, a day is like a thousand years. And in Second in Peter, where Peter says the Lord is not slow about his promises, a day is like a thousand years, and we realize that this has already been talked about before. The thousand years is the time of God's patience before the, before the end. Or another example, the, the binding of the devil right there from Revelation 20. Does God ever talk about in the binding of the devil in any other scripture text? And in fact, it turns out he does. Jesus tells a parable about the binding, the, uh, the, the binding of the strong man in the context of casting out the demons. So we read, the, the, we read these passages in light of the other passages, and we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. Rule number three. So rule number one, just to review, if you're joining us, by the way, we're this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're listening to Cross Defense, and we're talking about how to read the book of Revelation, how it's a book of comfort. Oh, man, it's not this horror sort of. It's like a, it's, it's, people, people think it's like the nightmare of the end times. It's like a pre-written newspaper. And, no, it's a revelation of Jesus. Now, we, we talked about rule number one, which was remember who's being revealed, Jesus. Rule number two is remember who it's for. It's for the church of all times. Rule number three, remember that Scripture uh, interprets Scripture. And then rule number four, now this is a really interesting one. Remember that the Revelation talks to us. Uh, it, it kind of, it gives, it'll give us these things. It, that one of the poetic features of it is that it'll give us these things from two different angles. And it'll, and it'll kind of push pictures together to give us a full picture of what's going on. I think my favorite is in Revelation chapter 5. So, so, so here's rule number four. Let me just say it before I give you the example. Rule number four is pay attention to what you see and what you hear. 
And here's the example. Revelation chapter 5, there's John. He's in heaven, and he's weeping in heaven. We say, wait, wait a minute. I didn't know they were supposed to cry in heaven. I thought once you get to heaven, there's going to be no tears. But the reason why John is crying is because there's this scroll, and it's sealed up front and back all around. It's got these massive seals on it, and no one is able to open the seals. This scroll is locked shut. And John knows, I don't know how, it's kind of how you know things in a dream. John knows that the opening of this scroll is important, but no one is able to open it. It says, no one in heaven or on earth is able to open the scroll. And so he's weeping. And then he says, he hears the elder say to him, hey, wait, stop crying. There's one who can open the seals. There's one who has prevailed, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, that's great. So that, so that the angel says, there's one strong enough who can open the seal. It's this lion. Now, what do you expect? You hear that the lion is coming. So what do you expect to see? Well, you expect to see a lion, but John looks and beholds a lamb as he had been slain. Now, can you imagine that? He hears lion and he sees lamb. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb as he had been slain both refer to Jesus. It's two ways of talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And the line of the tribe of Judah is this Jewish picture of the, the scepter not departing from Judah until the Messiah, the king, has come from Genesis chapter 50. And the lamb is the picture of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the one on, the sins are placed on. Like John preached, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is both of them. Now, the amazing thing is how different these pictures are. If you could... If you could You can't think of two more opposite images to imagine the strength and vitality of a lion and the humility and weakness of a slain lamb, and yet they, they meet together in the person of Christ. And that's the preaching. So, and this is how the book of Revelation will do go all the way through. And I mean, another beautiful example is John hears the number, 144,000, and he looks and he sees the multitude. And this is the way that John is doing it. He's mixing the hearing and the seeing with two totally different ideas to describe the same reality, and that's the reality of the church. So rule number four is pay attention to what you hear and to what you see. And, and, and let them know that it's John coming at the same picture from different angles. That's a lot of fun. And then the last one, and perhaps the most important one, is notice the... Let me see if I wrote this down so I wouldn't, I'd get it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Notice the movement from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. In other words, notice what the, where the vision is, is, is being brought to John. In fact, the whole pattern of the book of Revelation is something like this. John is given spiritual insight to the persecution of the church and the disaster that's happening. So it's peeled back and he sees the, the, the rivers turning to blood and the enemies of God coming against the church of God and he sees this assault on the people of God and it's this demonic, disastrous, sort of nightmarish assault on the church. And just when, I mean, almost when it's just about overwhelmed you, then then you're taken up into heaven and you're given a glimpse. I mean, just when you think that it must be that the devil's in charge of the world, you're brought into heaven and you're given a glimpse of the fact that the lamb who's slain still sits on the throne. And then when you get the full of that heavenly glory, it's back down to earth to see the wormwood and the gall and the 
and the and the brimstone and the fire and the attacks and the assaults and the wars and just when you think well maybe maybe the lamb isn't on the throne anymore then whoosh back up to heaven and there he is sitting there the lamb slain and that's really what the book of revelation is doing for you and for me too i mean as we look around this world and we think wow 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 it just looks like things are falling apart it looks like like god's not in charge and the book of Revelation gives us, it reveals to us this truth. That Jesus, the crucified one, the one who bore our sins and suffered and died for us and rose again, sits at the right hand of the Father. He really does. In other words, the revelation is a revelation of the ascension of Jesus and a preaching of the truth of that ascension, that Jesus stands there to intercede for us and to forgive our sins. And that's the key. I mean, that's really the chief rule is to, is to see in the revelation Jesus who sits on the throne for us. So those are the five rules for reading the revelation. Remember who's being revealed, who it's for. Remember scripture, interpret scripture. Pay attention to the hearing and the seeing. And remember that the vision, the chief vision is this vision of heaven where Jesus, the one who died, sits on the throne. That's a good question. And that's perfect timing. Wowzers. Like we know what we're doing over here, it's time for a break. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're listening to Cross the Fence. We're going to go to that break. It'll be short, I promise, and we'll get back with some more of your questions. Stay tuned. Pastor Wolfmuller here. I wrote a book called A Martyr's Faith for a faithless world and cph is publishing it it comes out sometime in august pretty soon you should be able to find information about it at cph.org very soon and you can in fact pre-order it on amazon.com search for a martyr's faith for a faithless world i talk about some of the martyrs and how they withstood the temptation to to doubt or to deny the lord jesus but most especially we take up this the parable of the sower where jesus talks about how the how the birds and the rocks and the weeds uh, assault the seed. That's how the devil and the world and the flesh assault our faith. And we talk about what the Bible says about it, how we can stand firm. This book is great for anyone that's just confirmed, anyone going off to college, anyone new in the faith, even those who are old in the faith will, will be able to recognize the assaults of the devil and how we can stand against them. Again, it's A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World, published by CPH, coming out in August. Uh, if you enjoyed, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. God's peace be with you. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> I forgot what I was doing for a minute. We're doing cross defense. <laughs> this is Pastor Brian Wolfie, the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. We were just talking about the five ways to, to read the Revelation, and I got it finished. I didn't think I would, but I got it finished. I posed, I took that excerpt from the book, Has American Christianity Failed?, and I posted on the blog. So if that is of interest to you, if those five rules for reading the book of Revelation are helpful for you, then you could go to wolfmuller.co, and there's like a list of blog posts. It should be close to the top, or you can search for Revelation or something. You can find it on there and print that out and so forth, and you can have it. So so five rules for reading the book of Revelation. Uh, that was there. Thank you for that question. We're moving on. We're doing Q&A day today. Uh, the second question, here it is. I got these piles of questions. I'm not going to get to all of them. We've only done one. All right, here's a good one. Yeah. Oh, 
Pastor Wolfmuller, what did the prophets know about what they were prophesying? That is a fantastic question. It seems like I've been talking about that lately. Maybe that's what where this came from, because this is a this is a great question about how do we read the Bible? I mean, how do we how do we understand what the prophets understood? In other words, when we read something like when Micah says that that out of Bethlehem, you Bethlehem, though you're the least of the tribes of Judah, from you will come forth the the king and so forth. Or when we read Isaiah, who says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Or when we read, when we read that God said to the devil in the garden, the, "I'll put enmity between between your seed and her seed. He'll crush your head and you'll crush his heel." What did the prophets understand? Did the Old Testament people understand it? Did the prophets know what they were saying? Did they, did they realize what they were prophesying? Now, I've got two Bible passages that, have, that, that talk about this. There's a lot more. I mean, okay, so, so maybe to kind of run into this, kind of take a step back and kind of ramp into the question. We know that the Old Testament is about Jesus. I mean, we know that because, well, we, I mean, because Jesus tells us, for one. Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have life. You don't realize that they testify of me so that the Scriptures testify of Jesus. Or remember the Emmaus Road, that great, oh, man, what a story. Here Jesus is hiding from the disciples. He's, like, playing hide-and-go-seek. <laughs> and they, and <laughs> they're all mopey, walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I mean, they, it, it, Jesus said, and Jesus says, why the long face? And uh, and they say, well, are you the only guy that doesn't know what's happened? There was this guy, Jesus. We, and it says in the text, how does it say it? It says, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped, but not anymore because he died. And we're, and we're just, we're crushed by it. And instead of saying, hey, guys, it's me, Jesus says, he, go, he starts doing a Bible study. And he takes them through Moses and all the prophets, and he shows them that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer before he entered into his glory. <laughs> so, so Jesus, instead of just showing him to them, he shows them himself from the preaching of the prophets. And then he pretends, he's just, the whole thing is so playful. Jesus pretends like he's going to keep going, and they say, wait, wait, come, it's late, come and eat with us and so Jesus goes in and, and then he breaks the bread and poof it's me ah they recognize him and he disappears I was, someone asked me one time why did why did Jesus just like appear and disappear all the time after the resurrection just poof pa poof pa pa poof and I don't know the answer but I think I mean maybe the answer the theological answer is that he was training them to, to he was he was training them that he was now going to be different he was going to be with them in a different way but I think it also could just be because if you could do that, if you could just walk through walls, you would you would do it too. There's this real playfulness with Jesus because he's beyond the reach of death. He's beyond the reach of sin. He's he's resurrected now, and there's there's no there's no pressure put kind of bearing down on him. He's so joyful. It's wonderful. But he's the, but this is the point of the, why we're talking about it is that Jesus teaches us. That Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, teach that it's necessary for the Messiah to suffer before he enters into his glory. So not only John 5 is the Old Testament about Jesus, but Luke 24, the Old Testament is about the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. And then we have even more. Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 10, and he says to the people, Don't you know that all the prophets testify that forgiveness of sins comes in the name of Jesus? 
So that not only is the Old Testament about Jesus, it's about the death and resurrection, it's about the suffering and glory of Jesus, but it's also about the forgiveness of sins that comes in the name of Jesus. All the prophets, Peter says, spoke that way. Which means the Old Testament is about justification. Now, this is, we're kind of picking this up on the way to the point to answer this question about what did the prophets know. But we know this, that the Old Testament is a justification book, just like the New Testament is. The Old Testament is about how the, the Messiah stands before the throne of God, pleading his death and resurrection, pleading his sacrifice, and the judge of the universe hears that pleading and answers with the declaration of our own innocence and acceptance before God. It's Stunning. Now, how, how is it that we read the Old Testament as if it's a law book? All law, no gospel. Like God was re It's like God used to be in a really bad mood in the Old Testament, and then he's suddenly, like, happier in the New Testament. No. No. This, the, the, the Old Testament is, is full of gospel. It's full of the promises of the of the Messiah who is to come. I think I how to found this the other day. This guy, my favorite guy, Alfred Edersheim. If you're looking for one book, by the way, this is the book that I give away most uh, for theologians. It's not just a technical book, although every pastor should be digging into this thing. But it's a good book for lay people too. It's beautifully written. You can find it online for free. It's Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and uh, in that book. He has an appendix that has a list of all of the Bible passages in the Old Testament that were considered to be messianic prophecies by the rabbis before the time of Jesus. So that it, it, he pulls out all of the texts that the Old Testament people thought referred to the Messiah. This is an amazing sort of thing. Uh, and here, I so I found out. Just looking up, the, uh, how many texts did they think referred to the old to the Messiah in the Old Testament? Answer: four hundred and fifty-six. That there was four hundred and fifty-six passages that referred to the coming Messiah. Now that's that's not the New Testament looking back on the Old Testament. That's the rabbis and the teachers at the time of Jesus looking at the Old Testament. This great expectation. I've got that list also on the old blog at wolfmuller.co. It's impossible to find anything on this website. You just got to use the search button because it's all kind of a mess. It just all piles in there. It's like it's like the garage after you move from Colorado to Texas. It's just piles of stuff, and you're sure there's something good in there. That is what the website is like. But anyway, we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. So that they were expecting this. So the prophets knew that they were preaching Jesus. They knew that. Now, I got two passages that I think address this question directly. The first is 1 Peter chapter 1, this beautiful passage, starting in verse 10, which says, Concerning this salvation, the salvation of your souls, which you have by being born again through the word of God, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels longed to look. Now that is a helpful passage. It says that the prophets... We're paying close attention to these things. 
that the, the prophets, more than anything else, realized the importance of the things that they were writing about Jesus, and they were searching diligently to try to understand them, and that they could see them, but th seeing them from afar off, so that they didn't, they didn't have the full picture. They, they, had the, they had the rough outlines, but they didn't have it, they didn't have it fleshed out. Now, the other passage that has to do with this is in Acts. And I, I want you to pay careful attention to this because this, this really helps teach us how to read the Bible. This is Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, you remember, is Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, 50 days after Easter, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and, they're, and they have the tongues of fire sitting above them and they all start preaching. Everyone says, well, these guys are drunk. And Peter defends him and says, it's nine in the morning. We're not drunk yet. <laughs> this is, something else is happening. In fact, Joel 2 is happening. The promise that God gave that he would restore the spirit to all humanity is happening. And then he starts to preach about Jesus. And here's how it goes. I'm going to pick it up at verse 25, although verse 29 is what we really want to kind of hone in on. Acts chapter 2, verse 25, Peter preaches. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter preaches. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You can, you can still go to the tomb of David. It's in um, it's there in Jerusalem, kind of on the south side. It's outside the city walls now because the city walls there now are from the Crusades. It's the same place. It's right next to the place where they think the upper room is where Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, which is kind of cool. And when we were there... I guess there had been some sort of protest at the tomb of David, like the day before we got there. So so we went to the upper room and we started singing a communion hymn, and the guard came with his gun pulled telling us not to sing. He thought we were protesting. That was exciting. Anyway, Peter's right. The tomb of David is there. Peter continues, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, the prophet, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. Now, did you catch that? David knew that he was acting as a prophet. David knew that he was speaking about the resurrection of the of the Messiah when he talked about the sitting on the throne. I remember I used to say that uh, that uh, there are so many prophecies to be fulfilled, and one of the prophecies to be fulfilled was that Jesus still had to sit on the throne of David. But Acts chapter two tells us that in the in the resurrection, Jesus sits on the throne of David, and it also tells us that David knew it. That David knew he was talking about the Christ. He knew he was talking about his suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension. He knew he was talking about the one who was God and man, who would be the Savior of the world. That David knew all of these things when he was preaching. Now, this is so important. Because the, the fact that the prophets had this robust theology 
means that we look at the Old Testament book, the Old Testament as a Christian book. There's this danger. Now here and here let's just get straight down to it. There's a danger that we read the Old Testament like a Jewish book. Like like it's not trinitarian. Like there's no doctrine of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit there. Or that there's no doctrine of the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity would take on our humanity. Or there's no doctrine of redemption, that the Messiah would die in our place. Or there's no doctrine of the resurrection, either of the Messiah or of the Messiah's people. We, we, we read the Old Testament, like, or we say, well, if it is Christian, it's, it's concealed. Like our doctrine is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the, in the New Testament. No, it's, it's, it's there. The Old Testament is a Christian book, and when David was writing his stuff, he was writing, let me be as clear as possible, King David was a Lutheran theologian. If Moses, for whatever reason, could come back alive and be hanging around and it was time for church, he wouldn't go to the synagogue, he would go to the Lutheran church. There's a continuity of doctrine that goes all the way through. Now, now it's true that, that while the basic outlines are there, they're, they're filled in more and more and more. And so the Lord is always kind of adding an angle of comfort as the prophets come along like this. But that the solid basic outlines are there. In fact, the outline of the, of the Apostles' Creed is already there in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. He'll crush your head, you'll bruise his heel. That there will be a... a, a a man born of woman without the help of a father who will ha who will be divine and will be able to destroy the devil by being destroyed himself but with a temporary death it's it's there it's all there i saw this woodcut of isaiah one time it's a beautiful woodcut there's isaiah and he he's having this vision and he sees the christmas and and the flight into egypt and he sees the the crucifixion of Jesus and, and the resurrection, baptism, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, all these pictures, because he could see them. Now, there's also something more on this, but but I think our danger is to our danger is to minimize the doctrine in the Old Testament and and say that it's not there. So I'm fighting against this. Now, there could be a danger on the other side, and that is to say that like the New Testament is even necessary, and that and that there's nothing that's clarified in the New Testament. Now, that is that is also not going to be the case. Jesus says, no, it says in Hebrews that these were all waiting, the prophets were all waiting to be perfected together with us. So there's a way that that the fullness of the revelation of the divine mercy is given to us in the New Testament. In fact, that's probably what Peter's preaching about in, in, in Acts 2 when he quotes Joel 2. He says, he says that young men will dream dreams and and uh, and the young women will see visions and so forth and that is that that the least in the kingdom of god has the fullness of the revelation of christ the things that the prophets desired to have in fact if if any of you i've i've wanted to commission this piece of art if any of you are artists this i think would be really great and that is to take the prophet isaiah and to have him sitting down on the ground with tears running down his eyes as he furiously writes in a scroll as the children, as, as Christian children confess the creed. And they say, I believe in Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. His only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And Isaiah says, Mary's her name. Mary, where was she from? Uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Oh, the Pop Pontius Pilate. H how did he suffer? Crucified. Oh, it's crucifixion. That all these details that Isaiah longed to look into are revealed, and that the the least in the 
church knows the fullness of this prophetic revelation. Ah, that's something. So, the answer to the question, did the prophets know what they were talking about? Yes. <laughs> they did. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfman. I can't believe it. That's a whole other segment. Gone. Let's go to the break. We'll take up some more questions. Maybe questions, question. We'll take up some more questions right after this. Stay tuned. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. In a day when numerous concerns about money and safety abound in this fallen world, there is still a beacon of hope in Christ Jesus spreading the gospel message of mercy. Worldwide, KFUO has been a good steward of donations, ensuring the safety of funds our listener-supported ministry receives. If you have questions about donating to keep this worldwide ministry healthy, send an email to gifts at kfuo.org. The Salvation Army, doing the most good through millions of volunteers in more than 100 countries worldwide. Serving hot meals to those in need, establishing hospitals, rehab programs, and community centers. It was in London's East End in 1865 where poverty painted a grim scene that Methodist preacher William Booth and his wife Catherine first established the Christian mission renamed the Salvation Army in 1878. Confronted with indifference and often resistance to his work, Booth said, Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity. Listen to its wail for help. The Salvation Army, today serving over 25 million people across the globe. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Wow, that break was fast. I told you guys it was going to be a fast break. You caught me browsing Amazon for Molly Hemingway's new book. Uh, what are we doing here? We're doing cross defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran, wait a minute, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Come and stop by next time you're hanging around Texas. It's great. Easily accessible from any place in Texas, St. Paul Lutheran Church right here in downtown Austin. Uh, we're taking up your questions. We talked about Revelation. We talked about, uh, did the prophets know what they were talking about? And here's another question. If you, by the way, have questions and you would like to submit them for consideration on the show or to be answered on the YouTube, uh, you can go to wolfmuller.co slash contact, or there's a button. Anyway, here's a question. It says, how about a video on the armor of God? How is it to be understood rightly, and how it, could it be misunderstood? Well, good question. Let me turn the camera on so we get a video. <laughs> The answer is, well, the armor of God, now this is an amazing, 
The armor of God comes up three times, as far as I can tell, three times in the New Testament, where Paul, all Paul, talks about it. In in Romans thirteen twelve, he says, he says this: "Put on the armor of light." <laughs> now I think that is fantastic. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> you can imagine you being the devil, and you're like, all right, I'm gonna prowl around like a roaring lion, see who I can devour, and you. And you go prowling around for some Christians. You come through the trees and you see a Christian. You start sneaking up and he stands up and he takes off his jacket. And you realize that underneath it is this radiant glowing armor shining like the sun. Wah! You say, well, let me go look for somebody else. <laughs> armor of light. That's so fantastic. So fantastic. Beautiful picture. Now, Paul expounds on that a little bit more in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 where he says, take up the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. That's two pieces of armor, a breastplate and a helmet. Now, it's going to be expanded in the main passage that most people are familiar with in Ephesians chapter 6, where he goes through the whole panoply of, of spiritual armament. But here Paul takes up two of his favorite things to talk about, uh, three, three of his favorite things to talk about, faith, love, and hope. Now, you'll, you'll notice all over that Paul has that triad working, faith, love, and hope. It's the way he outlines his writing. It's the way he outlines his prayers. It's the way, I mean, everything for Paul is, is faith, love, and hope. If you, if you want to sort of expand your own prayers, we can follow after Paul, and we pray for each other that the Lord would strengthen us in faith and love and hope. He says, these three abide, faith, hope and love, and the greatest is love. And, and why does he say the greatest is love, by the way? It's because faith and hope have an expiration date, <laughs> but love does not. This is, I mean, faith and hope are doing different things than love, but faith and hope will come to an end when we finally at last see Jesus face to face and have and are resurrected, that we have our hopes fulfilled. So faith and hope are are pushing towards something that will come to an end. They'll be fulfilled on the last day at the parousia. But, but love, love will endure. It'll keep on going. There's no expiration date. We keep loving eternity. That's why God is not faith or hope, but God is love. It's, there's an eternal quality to love. It's great. But, 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 but Paul makes these into a, a, a dressing, an armor there. He says, put on the breastplate. To protect your heart, what do you need? You need faith and love. And to protect your head, what do you need? Hope. This is something, really something there. Is it, there's a despair that works here, and there's a, there's, a, there's a doubt and a hate that works down here. And so, so Paul is addressing that with this armor. But the full picture of the armor of God comes to us in Ephesians chapter 6. This is at the end of the chapter. And remember that Ephesians, Paul's writing the Ephesians to the Ephesians. So it's not where it's written from, it's where it's written to. And probably Paul is in jail in Rome when he's writing this. So he's sitting there looking all day at this soldier, this Roman soldier, armed, ready for work, guarding Paul, keeping him there in jail. Now, it seems like his jail, by the way, in Rome, at least the first time, was pretty cush. People could come and go. It was like house arrest and so forth. But, but still, there's going to be these soldiers hanging around. And so he's looking at the soldier, and he says, you know, we, are, we Christians are also soldiers set apart for this spiritual warfare. And he, and he goes on to say, that we should be dressed then in this armor. So Ephesians chapter 10, verse 6 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Man, there's enough in that verse to talk about. So, so the strength of the soldier is often in his own training and his own weaponry and everything else. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Look, the strength is not in you. 
The strength is the Lord's strength. You are you are not going to go and overcome the spiritual uh, powers that come to afflict you by your own resources. Don't dare try. I mean, Jude tells the story of how the archangel Michael doesn't even say, I rebuke you to the devil, but the Lord rebukes you. There, so we dare not go and try to stand against the devil in the power, in our own powers. And so, and so Paul goes on to list the armor, and this is how we then stand in the Lord's power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, notice how what Paul's going to talk about how the purpose of this armor, why, why we're putting on the armor, and this is also important. We are not putting on this armor so that we can attack, but rather so that we can stand. Listen to what he says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Did you hear it? Stand, 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 stand. It's the picture of a sentry. Now, remember, remember, there's kind of two positions you could have in the Roman army. I say remember like you guys were alive back in the old Roman days. I don't know if anybody's that old. So maybe you don't remember. Maybe you don't know. Maybe I'm. But so, so know that in the, in the Roman army, there was kind of two positions. You had the charging position and you had the standing position. You had the you had those troops that would go and they would take the land, and then once the land was be t- would, was taken, they had a border, and they had they had sentries stationed along the border, to to make sure that the hordes and the enemy armies couldn't get in. It's protecting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So you have to guard your borders like this, and so the sentry duty stands there and does. Duty. Now, there was two things, apparently. I learned this from Dr. Kleinick. I don't know where he learned it. I asked him. I don't know if he knows where he learned it. But he told me, and I like this idea anyways, at least it fits, that there are two things that if you are doing sentry duty, if you're standing there protecting the border, there's two things that could cause you to be arrested and immediately put to death. I mean, killed, you know, executed. And those two things were, one, falling asleep on duty. I mean, if, can you imagine here you're supposed to be watching the border and here comes an enemy and they're invading and they and you're taking a nap? They sneak through? Just toast. So fall asleep. And 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 that's why Paul says that we wanna we wanna stay awake and alert, especially as we see the days getting evil. In fact, the spiritual alertness as we do spiritual guard duty is what the picture is here. And and what does that mean? Our alertness is our prayers. The the alert Christian is the praying Christian. That's the picture that Paul's giving us. And the second thing you could do to get yourself killed or executed is is going to fight. If the, if the enemy comes along and they're going to try to attack the border, you're supposed to sound the alarm and wait for backup. You're not supposed to go to war. You're not supposed to go and fight. You could be killed for that. Now, the answer, you, you don't have to get killed for it because you're going to be killed already. You're going to be killed by the armies coming in. But why would that be an executable offense? Why would it be so bad to be standing there and I see the enemies and I go and attack them? The answer is because I cannot do it alone. I can't go and defeat this enemy army by myself. I don't have the strength to do it. I send for resources for backup for the for the guys that are back in the platoon or whatever and that they got to come and help so i sound the alarm 
Now, that's the picture of the Christian life doing spiritual warfare. I'm not, I'm not going to fight the enemies. I'm not going marching off to, to overcome the, the kingdom of the devil by my own efforts and by my own resources. I'm standing, and I'm watching, and when I hear or I see the attack coming, then I call for backup. So that the Lord, this is the picture, the Lord has placed us in our various vocations, in our churches, in our families, in our neighborhoods, to pay attention, to listen, especially to listen. The, the, the sentry duty was most difficult at night because you can't use your eyes, and that's when the attack would come at night because it would be under the cover of darkness, and, 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 and sound doesn't travel as far as sight, so you can't see, you have to listen to it. And this is how it is in our, with us, in, in our conversations, and in our, in our homes, and families, and neighborhoods, and in the conversations that we have at church. We're listening to hear where the attack is coming from, and then we're calling in reinforcements with our prayers. We're standing, watching, and listening, alert. It's, be it's a beautiful picture. Well, Paul continues. Let's see here. He's going to list, oh yeah, he's, it's almost like he's look, looking at the soldier there in the prison, and he's going he's gonna to list the equipment that he has. And he says, stand fir firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which we can, with which we can extinguish all the parts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you have the belt, which is truth, the breastplate, which is righteousness, and and this is not our own truth. You know, this is not the belt of well, that's my truth, and that's and you got your truth. No, this is the the truth. This is the I am the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. This is the confession of the true faith of God in our flesh, bearing our sins, raised for our justification, coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's the truth that's holding all this stuff together. And the breastplate is the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own. Are you going to stand there and say, okay, why don't you go ahead and punch me in the chest behind the defense of your own righteousness? No. This is the righteousness of Jesus, the, the righteousness of the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, a righteousness. That's the kind of right, the righteousness of the gospel, apart from the law and the prophets, the, the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that's protecting our hearts. And that's a, that's a, that protection on the heart, that's a, that's an impenetrable sort of breastplate. It can't, nothing's going to get through that righteousness of Jesus. Your own righteousness, that's like, it's like wearing an old, beat-up undershirt to protect your heart. But the righteousness of Christ, that, that matters. So you have the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. You have the helmet of salvation. So the thing that's protecting your head is the fact that your sins are forgiven and that the Holy Spirit is calling you to eternal life. It's fantastic. And on your feet is the readiness of the good news. This is the always the gospel is pictured as the messenger, as the runner. As the, as the one who's taking from this place to that place, the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they believe unless they've heard it? How will they heard here unless they're preached to? And how will they be preached to unless they are sent as it's written? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. This is the picture, the gospel, by the way. This is kind of veering off track. I had to settle down. You guys are getting me excited about this. So good. The gospel, remember, is the is the good message. The good news, we say sometimes, the good message. 
it's like in the ancient world there was you know these cities would go to war with one another and, and there's a battle happening over the field over the horizon and i don't know if i'm i don't know if my 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 friends and the people fighting for me i don't know if they've won or lost i see i hear the sounds i see i smell the smells but i don't know the victory until finally someone runs from the battle with the message we lost that's the bad news or we won that's the good message this matters and here comes the gospel from across the horizons of time this messenger running to tell us that the victory's been won the victory over our enemies sin death and the devil that that the victory's been won by our lord jesus christ who now stands and holds the field as conqueror and we rejoice in that message ha huh. and the shield of faith i heard one time that they would take these they, you know they'd shoot the fiery arrows and so they take these shields and they would douse them in water and so the arrows would hit them and they'd be extinguished now that's a nice picture of baptism for you the shield of faith which extinguishes all the fiery darts of the devil and take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of god now this is fantastic there is one little piece of offensive weaponry and it is the sword of the spirit that is the scriptures knowing that the scriptures are inspired by the holy spirit and then paul tells us how we wield the the scriptures now this is important for us i mean i think we often you know who to, with whom do we fight with the scriptures and how do we fight with the scriptures well, paul tells us take up the sword of the spirit praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplications for all the saints so the way that we use the sword of the spirit the way we use the word of god in spiritual warfare is we take it up and we pray we pray against the devil we pray for the church for the state for our loved ones and our family we take up god's word and we use it in our prayer and by doing so we engage in spiritual warfare now the tech the question was how do we understand the armor of god rightly and wrongly and i think one of the ways we can understand it wrongly is this idea that you know, the demons are kind of overcoming us, and it's up to us to kind of fight back and do all this sort of stuff. We disconnect spiritual warfare from the death of Jesus on the cross. But it's precisely in the crucifixion that Jesus triumphs over the devil, that he crushes the head of the devil, that he makes a public spectacle of the devil, that he became, that he became flesh and blood so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of the devil. And this is how we are equipped to fight against the spiritual darkness. We wear the promises of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. That is the armor of light. Hey, that was a good question. I can't believe we're out of time. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you have been listening to Cross Defense, which is now over. Whew, if you've got questions, you can send them to me at wolfmuller.co. Hit the contact button and send your questions and pay attention. Maybe we'll do it. On future episodes, we'll take those up. And thanks for uh, these questions as well. I love it. And remember, there's nothing more glorious, more beautiful, more comforting, more delighting than the Lord's Word. His truth. His truth which endures forever and which gives us eternal life. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week. God's peace be with you.
Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for listening to this podcast of Cross Defense. So glad that you stuck it all, all the way to the end. If there was something helpful here, we'd love to hear about it. And mo- more than that, we'd love it if you would share it. If there's someone who you think would have some benefits, some spiritual edification from hearing what we talked about in the show and un- this kind of unfolding or digging into the Scriptures, then please do share it with them. Uh, that'd be great. And like we mentioned, if you have any questions that you want to hear addressed on future shows, please send them to us, wolfmuller.co, contact. You can find a bunch of other stuff there, including that list of the five things to rules to ask when reading the book of Revelation. That's theirs. Also, the list of the 452 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. You'll find that also on the blog, wolfmuller.co. Thanks. God's peace be with you.